Thank you for listening to the Love Your Bod Pod. Before we dive in, just my usual disclaimer that this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only and does not substitute individual, professional, medical, or mental health advice. Welcome back to the Love Your Bod Pod. I'm your host, Kara Carincifelli. I'm a certified holistic health coach, and I help humans heal their relationship with food and make peace with their bodies so that they can live incredibly empowering, fulfilling lives that they love. And today we have a really lovely, beautifully well-spoken guest with us. Her name is Ingrid Nilsson, and we talk about a wide range of topics today, things that we haven't explored yet on the podcast. I'm really excited to dive in. We explore things like beauty and makeup and acne and society's like conversation around acne we talk about Ingrid's exploration into her sexuality and coming out as gay online and what she learned from that experience and what that was like we dive into photoshop and the implications of these digitally manipulated images that we see and how there's starting to be a shift in media and we explore that and we also talk about periods and and women's relationships to periods and their bodies and we talk about body hair in our relationship to body hair and how such a large percentage of the population has conformed to the expectation that like women aren't supposed to have hair like beneath their eyebrows. And we lastly kind of wrap up talking about perfectionism and creativity and curiosity versus judgment. Um, I really think that you're going to love this conversation. So let's just dive right into it. Welcome back to the Love Your Bod pod today. We have a really lovely guest with us. Her name is Ingrid Nilsson. She is a New York City creative and online video personality who has spent 10 years pioneering a new industry that has changed the way media and advertising is consumed. With over 8 million followers across her social channels, Nilsson uses her platforms to challenge the beauty and wellness industry through informative content and interviews with some of the world's most influential people, including President Obama and Bill Gates. Her CoverGirl ambassadorship was the first brand partnership of its kind between a traditional beauty brand and an online personality, and she has gone on to partner with global brands like Amazon, Unilever, and Bare Minerals. Nilsson was awarded the Digital Innovator Award by Trevor Live, the Streamy Beauty Channel Award, and was selected for Oprah's Super Soul 100 and named a UN Change Ambassador for Gender Equality. Holy bananas, girl. Hi, welcome. (laughs) Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm so excited to chat with you today. We're talking about, we're going to talk about some really awesome things. Um, Let's just dive right into the questions. Okay. Okay. So a quote that I've been really inspired by is this, you can't connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect them looking backward. So you have to trust that the dots will somehow connect in your future. You have to trust in something, your gut, destiny, life, karma, whatever, This approach has never let me down and has made all of the difference in my life. And that's by Steve Jobs. So Ingrid, can you tell us about your journey and the dots to where you are now, how you got started with YouTube, why you focused on beauty, and how you have evolved and grown so much over the years? Well, first of all, I have to say that I love this quote that you chose because I think this is especially something that I have been thinking about now um, and to, you know, really understand where we are and where we're going. We have to look in the past and connect those dots. So I think I love this quote. I'm, I'm going to keep it for myself so I can have it. <laughs> yeah, um, awesome. 
but I, so I started my YouTube channel 10 years ago, by the way, I'm in New York City, so there are sounds of New York City happening <laughs> at the window right now. <laughs> I can't really mm. apologize for it because it's just the city, but um, I started my channel 10 years ago, and at that time, I was really struggling. I was going through one of the most difficult periods of my life. My dad had just died when I was finishing high school. And when that happened, it just felt like my life had stopped. And my mom had also been extremely sick while I was in high school. She had breast cancer. And you know, I had been bracing myself for all of those years to lose my mom. And suddenly, at the end of my junior year, my dad died very unexpectedly. And so I just, it just, my life just felt like it turned into this like black void where I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't know where I was, where I was going and I didn't particularly care. Um, and I think that was the hardest part, just the not caring. And, you know, I was really destructive in my behavior and I wasn't someone that like leaned on drugs or alcohol in that moment. Um, I really, uh, leaned into people that I shouldn't have been leaning into and getting into relationships that um, weren't helping me grow. They were really toxic and, you know, I wasn't being my best self in the relationships. And I think it was a reflection of how I saw myself and how I felt about myself. And so I... I spent a lot of time alone, and at that point in my life, I had become curious about makeup, and um, it was something that I always thought was, like, not for me. It was just something that, you know, really beautiful, cool girls did, and it wasn't, like, my thing, and I would never understand it, but I started, like, Googling um online for makeup. I heard that MAC makeup was cool and I was just doing random searches. And I found these girls on YouTube from all over the world, sitting in their bedrooms, in their living rooms, wherever they were, talking about the makeup that they were enjoying. And they were also showing me how to apply everything. And this was such a contrast from the world of magazines that I had grown up with, where I was just so tired of getting shitty recommendations from magazines and leaving my money for like a lipstick. And then I would buy it because it was on like Britney Spears or something in this magazine. But then in real life, it sucked. Mm -hmm. um, and later I learned, you know, a lot of those products, they pay for that placement. Um, and so I was really just not trusting the magazine advice that I was getting. And it was amazing to get advice and recommendations from real people who were spending their money and they would show how to use the products and then they would tell you what they thought about it. And I learned so much and I felt like these girls were my friends um, at a time where I just felt like I didn't have any friends and I was totally 
alone. And I just loved it. It was like my little happy bright spot. And so after about a year, I think it was, yeah, about a year of watching YouTube videos, I felt like I had learned so much and I really wanted to try making my own video to give back to people and to share um, something that I learned. So I didn't know how to make a video. I remember waking up at 3 a.m. and making my YouTube channel, like <laughs> jumping out of bed at 3 a.m. because I was like, if I don't do it now, I'm never gonna do it. <laughs> I made my channel at three o'clock in the morning and then I think it was maybe a few days after I figured out how to get a video feature working on my laptop and I recorded a video, didn't know how to edit. I was really struggling with the iMovie process and I posted my first video, which is no longer up, which I'm bummed about. I didn't save it. I deleted it pretty early on because I didn't think I, it was something that I would want to save. Um, yeah. Tutorial where I was curling my hair. I barely said anything, and it was pretty like just not great looking back on it. Like you couldn't really see anything. The lights were behind me. That's how much I didn't know. Um, <laughs> but I really enjoyed the process. It felt like such a release and a relief to do something that I had been afraid of, that I had been really curious about. It was also such a creative release for me because I've always loved making things with my hands. And this was like a new way of expressing myself using my hands, whether it was applying makeup or doing my hair. And it was probably like two or three weeks before someone even saw the video. Um, but I saw that it got a view and freaked out because I was like, oh God, it was one thing to post this and it's another thing that somebody has seen it now. And I so um, relate to that. Yeah. I'm like, oh God, this is, this is different. Now somebody, a real person has seen this. And they left a comment. They were really kind. And I remember responding to the comment and just loving you know, talking to another person that was out there and slowly another person watched and they left a comment and then we were all talking and people asked me to post more videos. And so whenever I had time, I would make a video wherever I happened to be at that time and then I would post it. And it was a really simple process at that time. And no one was like this wasn't a job for people. And that's what I really loved about that time is that everyone who was making YouTube videos at that time, it was because they had something to say and something to share. And it was just this amazing outlet where you could do anything you wanted creatively. And these communities were being formed and you know, you knew who other people were who were making videos, you knew the people who were leaving comments, you could recognize their screen names. Um, and then, you know, it was, it's always been a slow, gradual process for me. I never had this like overnight, like success or anything. Um, it has always been gradual, slow growth. And about two years into making videos, that was the point where 
um, AdSense had been introduced at that point where you could start making, you know, a small amount of money off of the videos that you were posting. And that's when I realized, oh, I think I could pursue this full time if I really dedicated myself to this. And that's also the time where I was approached by management. Um, and so it seemed like all everything was pointing in this direction for me to take this path. And so I just took it and took a leap of faith in myself. Um, and you know, I still have the same manager to this day. So that's really incredible. She is somebody who believed in this space, um, really early on. And from there, I was able to keep doing something that I loved doing, but I also had a, per a professional team of people backing me up to help me, you know, form relationships with different brands and help it grow into something that could be long-term and sustainable. So 10 years, well, maybe like from that point, eight years later, you know, I have a profitable business that's been profitable every single year. And it's something that I find so much fulfillment in. And it's something that I get to be creative with. And, um, you know, that's all I could ever really hope for. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, gosh, thank you so much for sharing. I learned so much about you that I didn't know. <laughs> um, and now you still talk about beauty products and you still talk about skincare, but you've really evolved into talking about much more complex issues. Like obviously like inter interviewing President Obama and Bill Gates, like that's, I mean, that's incredible. And it's also like has nothing to do with makeup. So really what was that? Like, how did that shift start to occur? I think honestly, it started really early on um, when I was you know, questioning simple practices that I had. So when I first started making videos, I had cystic acne on my face, on my body. And um, I think my relationship with makeup has always been complex, but it was very complex then because I loved makeup. I loved the act of putting it on and you know, how I could express myself. And also it could be a tool that could help me just be a little bit more gentle with myself on days when I was being especially harsh or cruel. Um, but then there were the days where I didn't want to wear makeup. Um, I just didn't want to go through the process. I didn't feel like doing it, but I felt like I had to in order for people to look at me and not look at my acne and to take me seriously and to see me more professionally. So that was, I remember one of the first things that I remembered noticing that I felt really torn about. And so I started challenging myself because at that point I could not leave the house without wearing a full layer of full coverage foundation. And it was it was so extreme that I was even showering with foundation on because I didn't want anybody to see me without any makeup on. Um, mm -hmm. And I remember how that felt. I remember just feeling so sad 
on the inside and so pained and like I had this heavy weight on top of me. And so I started challenging myself to wear makeup, you know, on the day or not wear makeup on the days when I just didn't want to wear makeup and see how that felt. And it was so incredibly hard and painful, especially in the midst of having acne and our society has a very specific view of people with acne. You know, we're taught to think that there's something wrong when you have acne, that you're dirty, that you're not doing enough, that it's unprofessional. That's something that comes up for a lot of women, is that it's unprofessional to have acne, especially in a corporate environment. Wow. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's something that I've had friends express to me. And, you know, men are not, men who have acne in you know, the corporate world are not seen as unprofessional or like there's anything wrong with them. But a, if a woman shows up and she has acne and she doesn't have makeup on, then she's not doing enough. Mm -hmm. um, so I started not wearing makeup and it was really difficult and painful. And there were times when I cried and just felt horrible but slowly I started to realize that I would survive, I was surviving the days. Like I would make it through the day into the next day. And that gave me confidence to move into the next day after that. Mm. And I started finding people who were looking at me and listening to me and not at at my acne. They weren't like fixating on it. And I started realizing, oh, those are the people that like I want, I want to be spending time with those people. That's where I want to be going. And slowly it started to shift into something that I felt like I needed into something that, you know, I was applying makeup on the days when I just wanted to be wearing makeup or on the days when I was like, you know, I just need, I just need to be a little bit easier on myself and putting on some foundation is going to help me today. But I know that, you know, tomorrow could be a different experience and I could feel great about myself. And I think just getting used to seeing myself with acne and not trying and not fixating on it so much and really focusing on like the people that I was with, the ideas that I was sharing that kept pushing me in the direction that I really wanted to be going in. And that was really the starting point for exploring my entire relationship with beauty. And, you know, right now I'm exploring like my relationship with body hair and I just, I really took it from, you know, makeup into the entire experience with my body. I've talked a lot about periods, which is, you know, one of the reasons or one of the reasons why my interview with President Obama went viral was because I asked him about periods and I had been very active and curious about learning about the natural function of my body why people thought periods were gross and disgusting and they were afraid to talk about them and why people had certain ideas about different period products. And I really wanted to 
just break down all of these subjects and just break down the stigma too. Um, because what I started to realize as I made videos um, over the course of time is that I wanted to help women feel at peace with their bodies and the way that they express themselves. Um, and the only way that you can really do that is to have a deeper understanding of what your body is doing and how you're feeling about all of it. Um, so I would say it's just been a really natural process. I've welcomed, you know, these curiosities and these questions as they've come up and they've evolved with me as I've grown up over the last 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. I can really see that. And I, and I think that it's what you had said, you said a lot of really great things, but having this awareness of like the people who you could tell were really engaging with you, like the human Ingrid and not judging her based on her skin. I think that that overlaps with body image in every degree of like really acknowledging the people that love you for who you are. And those are the people you want to spend time with. Also exploring the expectations um, and the, the sense of obligation you had felt around needing to cover up your skin or needing to be beautiful and really challenging that. Like that's super like honest work, you know, like that's not easy work to do, but it's really potent and powerful and creates the shift. And I would really love it if you would share with us a little bit about what it was like to, to come out as gay on YouTube. I remember when that video went viral, um, how did that impact your life and your relationships? Like what had you decide to like, come, like I have to share this. I can't hide this anymore. What was that like? Well, it was, I'll start from the beginning, right before I put the video out into the world. I was so incredibly nervous um, when I made the video, but I went into the making of the video with the intention of just saying what I had said to everybody else that I had come out to in my life up to that point. And I remember the feeling that I had after making the video where it felt like a relief, like, okay, I did it. And I remember editing it. It was all just kind of a blur, the editing experience. It just like came together. And then I had this thing that I had worked on that had been years of work in the process of just coming out and coming to terms with my sexuality and my identity and, you know, having to connect those dots in the past and um, align them with who I was in that moment. Um, and I remember publishing the video and in that moment, knowing this is no longer mine anymore. Like I have to let it go in this moment because I have done the work that I need to do. And now it's, it's not inside of me anymore. It's, it's out there in the world and it doesn't belong to me. Mm -hmm. um, and I walked away from it. I didn't sit around at my computer and like watch comments come in. I walked away from the video and I immediately went to people in my life who are my best friends. And we went on a road trip to Maine. Mm -hmm. um, and my friend Eileen, uh, who you know, she mm -hmm. 
kind of like kept me a little bit up to date on like what was happening with the video as we were on this road trip. And I remember her telling me, oh my gosh, it has a million views already. And then the next thing was like, it has 3 million views. And then the next thing was like, it has 5 million views. And I just couldn't even wrap my head around what was happening because I just, I, I didn't know what I was expecting, you know, the response to be because I wasn't really thinking about that. I was thinking about what I needed to say to people and um, that was it. I wasn't thinking about, well, what are people going to be thinking mm. about this after I post it? And I, looking back on it, I'm grateful that I wasn't thinking about that um, because it allowed me to tell my story from a really um, vulnerable, authentic place. Um, but the response was, it was a lot of things. And on one hand, it was really difficult to deal with um, because, you know, I was the first woman who had my size audience um, who had come out on YouTube. I am also biracial and I'm also feminine in my presentation. So all of those things were people things that people had not seen up until that point because most of the coming out videos um, on YouTube up until that point and even just coming outs like off of YouTube had been mostly from white men. Um, mm. And the response that I got in comparison to white men coming out was different. I had much more of a negative response from people. So, um, you know, people were saying things like, you're lying, you're doing this for attention, I don't believe you, you don't look gay. Mm. All sorts of things in that world. And people were exceptionally cruel. Like I'm being nice when I, when I say those things, but they were being incredibly cruel. Um, so that was really hard to hold space with. Um, yeah. But then on the other hand, um, there was such an incredible response from other people. And, um, you know, people were writing articles about my coming out. And there was this one article that I remember reading that really made me kind of understand more the impact that this was having on people because I didn't think about, oh, there hasn't been anyone that looks like me that has come out, um, you know, who has this size of audience. Um, and it made me realize, oh my gosh, this is a moment where like people are seeing themselves reflected back. And mm -hmm. over the last almost four years now, I have had people come up to me to tell me in person what my coming out video has meant to them. And it it's come from every kind of person that you can imagine. And what they tell me isn't just about 
sexuality. It has to do with everything. And I was talking, I, you know, I was sharing my story of coming to terms with my sexuality. But from that video, people have discovered various things about their identity, not limited to just their sexuality. And, you know, I've had people tell me that the video has helped them come out to their families or has helped one of their friends come out to their friends and family. Um, Middle-aged women have, tell, have told me that it has made them reflect on past experiences that they had in their youth. Um, and so it's been a really profound experience because to this day, I still have people who will stop me on the street to tell me what my coming out video means to them. And I am always just awestruck in those mm -hmm. moments because it's not about how many views that video got. It's knowing that that moment in time, that moment in my life touched other people, even just one other person. And when somebody comes up to me and tells me what that video meant to them, I'm able to see one person who it affected. And they're going to walk away from that conversation and continue their life. And that video has affected their life and their path. And that is such a profound thing for me to sit with. Um, and I think it's, it's the just ultimate measure of success for me to know that um, I have touched another person's life in a positive way. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I so get that. I like have chills listening to you speak because I can really hear uh, how genuine that is about how being able to just be vulnerable and be real and how it's had such an impact for people. Um, I can also, I can only imagine the intensity of, of the negative stuff um, and how confronting that may have been for you and also for the people who felt the need to, to be cruel about it. Um, and, the, and you said a couple of things that really stood out about how you present as feminine as just being like kind of girly and, and wearing dresses and all of those things and how that's traditionally not the, the, the picture that's painted in the world. Um, and so I got that you're in opposition to that. How did like coming out or like coming to terms with your sexuality change your relationship with your body? And like, did that at all contribute to you wanting to explore periods more? And why do you think there's so much shame around the period conversation? Do you think um, there's any relate, any relation there? I mean, I think that coming out definitely helped me to feel more comfortable with exploring my body just because I was becoming more comfortable with being in my body as a full human being. Yeah. I think the history of periods is very, very complicated, long and complex. In various cultures, you know, women when they had their periods were seen as basically demons that would like taint food if they touched the food and they were menstruating and um, like women weren't allowed to do certain things when they were menstruating because people were afraid that things would become contaminated and you know even 
leading up into the 1900s, if you look at packages and advertisements for period products, they all say something about, well, you need to keep quiet about this. This is something that you need to keep to yourself, that it's, it's a private thing. Don't talk about it, but here's this thing that you can use like shamefully um, in secret. And so I think that really prevents people from you know, learning about their bodies. And when you learn about your body, you have more information to make the decisions that are right for you. And that's what I wanted to present is the information and the options that people had in front of them because I didn't know what my options were. And I remember just, you know, people telling me things about, I prefer to wear pads. So people saying things like pads are dirty. It's like you're wearing a diaper. That's gross. Why would you want to sit in your own blood? Um, and I didn't have any information to help me through those moments. And mm. so, you know, I learned from other women and I wanted to sh share the things that I have learned that have helped me. And now there are more options than ever before for managing your period and the conversation has really expanded into something that's more acceptable. So, you know, the year that I did the Obama interview, Time Magazine had a cover story with a bloody tampon on it. Um, and they were talking about, the whole piece was about periods from, you know, a little bit about the history, the stigma around it, the luxury tax on tampons. And that was a really incredible thing to see because, you know, for so long we haven't even seen like, you know, a period product with a liquid that's red on it. We've always seen like a weird blue liquid. So seeing that on the cover of a magazine was like a huge moment. Um, and, you know, as time has passed since then, I think that I've just carried that curiosity into whatever feels right, whatever feels like the next right thing. I just let it guide me. And right now it has guided me to exploring my relationship with body hair. Um, and going back to like my sexuality helping me with um, exploring my body, I definitely do think there is a connection, especially now, because I, you know, I made a video recently about body hair and one of the top responses that I got on Instagram when I asked people about how they felt about their body hair, um, one of the top three responses was that, you know, people were afraid of what their partners would think and or their partners had expressed something negative. Um, and that is definitely a theme that I have experienced throughout the course of my life over like a wide variety of different body topics, but especially hair. Mm -hmm. And I mm -hmm. think being comfortable with my sexuality, being in a relationship where I feel like I can take risks and be daring and be independent in my thought and, you know, just explore the things that I want to explore 
is such a huge thing for, for me. Because if I was with someone who was like, gross, what are you doing? I would feel this intense urge to stop already. I mean, there's already a huge urge to stop and to not explore these things because it's going against what our culture tells us we should be as women. And so to have somebody in your life who's so close to you telling you to stop or like expressing hesitation about it, that can really create a huge conflict. So I am really grateful that I'm in a place where I can explore these things safely and I can talk to my girlfriend about these things and these fears that I'm having, the concerns I'm having, um, and know that I'm going to be heard and respected. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I watched that video and it was, I really loved that you dove into some of the history. Um, I was really blown away by the statistic you shared that like 93 to 97% of women conform to the expectations of us needing to, to shave our legs and underarms and get Brazilian wax. And you talked about how there was a correlation with fashion and how as like the style of skirts got shorter, uh, shaving became more of a thing. So it's really interesting to look at the the beauty trends and how there's this expectation of women to look a certain way. Um, and I can so relate to your partner having opinions about body hair. Um, even in my current relationship, it's a thing. And uh, I had this experience a couple, I gosh, like a month or two ago, I was at the beach with a bunch of my girlfriends and some of them didn't shave and I hadn't shaved and I hadn't like noticed it because my like pants were riding up and we were sitting down and I like was witnessing myself be embarrassed. I was like witnessing myself being like, God, I hope no one like looks at my my hair, uh, you know, and like judges me and thinks I'm like dirty and don't shower. And it's such a complex relationship that, but we've been trained to find these naturally occurring parts of our bodies gross and, yeah. and disgusting. Yeah. Yeah. And it's crazy too that, you know, for so long, I thought having body hair would make me unfeminine. Yet as women, the majority of us are born with hair. So hair would be inherently feminine because just by the simple fact that we're born with it. And we also don't look at men who have hair on their faces too sometimes as like being dirty. Like we don't see a man with chest hair and leg hair and underarm hair and immediately think, oh, he's disgusting and he doesn't shower and he's lazy and etc. In fact, like for some people, hair is like exceptionally attractive. And I think right now it's like a huge trend for men to have more facial hair and just more body hair in general. Whereas for women, it is, you know, entirely different. Like if we have even a little bit of hair underneath our arms, it's just like, oh my God, what is she doing? Mm-hmm. And that's how I used to feel. I used to feel that way about women. I remember feeling the disgust just by seeing another woman with body hair that was visible. And I I didn't want to feel that way anymore about other women. And I didn't want to feel that way anymore about myself. 
Mm, yeah. And I imagine people listening right now can, can hear themselves and be like, yeah, gosh, I find body hair gross or like, yeah, I'm turned off by it. Or like, yeah, there's this double standard of if a woman has body hair, she's like dirty and gross and some hippie or whatever. And then a man gets to, to be sexy and like hunky and whatever. And, and I, and I got that this is another area of your life where you're curious about challenging the norm and challenging this expectation that you, that you have just like you did with like the acne and the need to, to wear makeup. Yeah. And it's a, it's a scary process because, you know, there have been moments that I vividly remember where I've been in the shower and I've picked up the razor and I have shaved and afterwards I've felt so awful, just so sad because I knew that I had given in to my fear and I had betrayed my deeper self and what my deeper self is wanting. And so now I'm at a point where I haven't shaved for months. And I think I've really passed like that major hump where it's like exceptionally hard to really watch your body hair come in. It can be uncomfortable because it's itchy at first. Um, But I really started to make myself look at it because when I was first growing it out, I was kind of just like ignoring it. Like, okay, this is happening. I'm going to ignore the experience. And then I realized, you know, for this to be something sustainable, I need to acknowledge its presence. Mm. And so I started just taking time and like looking at it underneath my arms and like looking at it wherever it's coming through on my body. Um, And now I'm starting to get to a point where I can look at it and not have all of the negative talk coming through. It's much, it's been quieted and Mm -hmm. I'm able to just see myself and, um, and even like my body hair and think that it's like cool to have it. Um, Mm -hmm. I am, I will say nervous about summer because that'll be my first time really having it be more exposed on a regular basis. Yeah. Uh, So I am nervous for that, but I got a comment on my video recently that said uh, this person had like grown out their body hair and they were at the grocery store and like reaching across to get something. And like another woman was like, you go girl. Cause she like saw her armpit hair and just feeling that kind of, um, you know, camaraderie yeah. and like connection with other women, I am definitely excited for that because I know that on the other side of that, there's a lot of opposing opinions and it just makes those connections even more special. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you're, you're totally like going against, against the grain of cultural norms and, and rewriting what it means to be a woman and what we're allowed to do in society and what's seen as acceptable. And, and I, and what I'm hearing when you're speaking about like looking at your body hair and, and, and realizing that the negative judgments have slowly gone away, the more you've exposed yourself to it. We talked about exposure theory in one of, I can't remember the podcast number, but it was called another diet is not the answer with Naomi from diet culture sucks. And she talks about exposure theory and how the more she forced herself to look at her body and look at the parts of her body she didn't like, the more comfortable she became with it because it's hard to be uncomfortable with something you see all the time. Mm -hmm. Same with like the period thing. Like it's hard to be uncomfortable if you're talking about periods and you're not keeping it secret 
it's hard to be uncomfortable with your body hair if you constantly expose yourself to it. It's really easy to be uncomfortable with something you never expose yourself to. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, which is exactly why when I was first growing it out, I was like, oh God, because you're like seeing it for the first time. It's, it's totally new and it seems like something completely foreign. Yeah, which is, it's like if I actually sit and really drop into that, I really sink into it. Like, wow, it's actually so foreign to us to see a naturally occurring part of our body. Like we've been taught to be so averse to it. And that is such a constructed reaction. Yeah. 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 And also the, you know, amount of time and energy and money money that is spent, you know, fixating on all of these different things, but specifically body hair. Like if you're shaving, razors are expensive. If you're waxing, that's like a whole time commitment and you know, monetary commitment, lasering is expensive and also painful. Like every method of hair removal, if you are like removing it down to the skin is painful, time consuming, and it takes money out of your pocket. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So that is also something to sit with as well. And, you know, sometimes I think these practices, especially shaving and um, waxing when it comes to waxing your pubic hair, shaving your pubic hair, that is something that can really open us up to quite literally to infections and, you know, irritation, whether it's ingrown hairs, cuts. Um, And it's interesting because our hair, our pubic hair is actually there to protect our vulva and our vagina to, you know, catch any like dust or debris that like may present itself. But um, when we remove the hair to the extent where there's nothing there, we are like removing our natural, you know, protection for that area. And the more that I've let my hair grow, I've realized, oh yeah, like this is just more comfortable. Like I'm not itchy. I, I don't have ingrown hairs. You know, it's just physically more comfortable. And now I'm just at this point where I'm really thinking about what it could be like to trim my hair. And I'm really thinking about it like how I cut the hair on my head, where I'm not, you know, cutting my hair down to the skin. I'm not waxing it. I'm not like pulling anything out. I'm trimming it and keeping the majority of my hair there. And um, so far, just like in theory, I feel good with that. Like if I were to get a little trimmer that just kind of like trims like the top off and like with my underarm hair, underarm hair, just kind of like shaping it in a way that like I want it to be shaped, but still keeping the majority of my hair. So that's like something that's really interesting to me because I always thought that it had to be like all or nothing and this really painful experience. But now I'm realizing, oh, I can be comfortable. I can have the vast majority of my hair, but I can also like trim it too, if I feel like it. Yeah. Yeah. Just like you would get a trim for your, the hair on your head, you know? Yeah. And, um, yeah, like our eyelashes are there to like protect stuff from getting in our eyes, you know, yeah. like, I think all of hair, hair has a, has an evolutionary purpose. Yeah. Know, exactly. Um, 
let's shift gears a little bit here. Uh, I would love to kind of chat with you about a recent event that you were at with CVS. Um, and they announced that they're going to start to shift the images uh, shown for their beauty brands to not have, have Photoshop. And, you know, we have other brands like Ari no longer airbrushing body hair and using more diverse women and models. And then Barbie came out with more diverse size Barbies. Um, what are your thoughts on this cultural movement away from the traditional thin beauty ideal that we're used to seeing? What excites you about what CVS is up to? Like, where are you at? I think that this movement overall is really exciting because I think this kind of transparency is revolutionary, especially for larger brands and companies like CVS. Um, and I actually wrote this down so I would remember it. But um, so when I was at the CVS event, they had a panel of um Various people, I was moderated by Katie Couric, and they were discussing beauty standards and how they came to the conclusion that they were going to be transparent about the imagery in their stores. So, you know, when you go into a CVS store, you will see imagery that has not been altered and it will have a mark on it that signifies that. And if it has been, altered, it will be very clearly labeled as altered. So you can see it and it's not tiny either. It's like visible on mm -hmm. the photo. So you know what you're looking at. Um, and I think that's amazing. But on this panel, there was a woman named Dr. Rachel Rogers, and she is an associate professor of applied psychology at Northeastern University. And she shared some statistics with us that I thought were really fascinating and also heartbreaking. She said that 80% of women feel worse after looking at an ad and 80% of women are unhappy with the way that they look. And I remember her delivering those statistics and thinking that is not a coincidence. Those two things are completely tied together and they have been tied together for a very, very long time. Um, and, you know, we've for a long time been shown a very narrow view of what's considered beautiful. And that's often dictated by a really small group of people. And interestingly, <laughs> the beauty industry at an executive top tier level is mostly run by men. Yeah. Which is quite disturbing you know the industry where the majority of the customers are women it's being run by men um so that is something that makes me profoundly uncomfortable mm. and you know i think that initiatives like this are really great because there are so many different kinds of people in this world, different bodies with different life experiences. And the more that we see um, these things reflected accurately back to us, we can find peace and acceptance within ourselves. So I think this movement is a really, really, really big deal, um, especially because um, you know, this has been something that has been discussed on the internet and spread on the internet for quite a long time. And CVS and Aerie are really, 
you know, two of the biggest companies who have been first to adopt these conversations, really listen to the conversations and really change their practices. Um, something else that I think is interesting is that at the same time with social media, more individual people are able to alter their photos than ever before. And this is where it gets complicated for me at least. I like think about this all the time because on one hand, the power is more widely distributed. So it's no longer just singularly in the hands of a photo editor who a lot of the times would be a man. Like when I would watch photo editors do their work, it's mostly men sitting at a computer photoshopping photos of women. Um, so in that regard, there is a sense of power when you have the tools in your hands. But then on the other hand, what are the long, I think about what are the long-term effects of regular people, not just influencers, when you are dissecting pictures of yourself and picking out every single feature that you don't like and then you're altering them like what yeah. is what is that long-term effect yeah I would gosh I think that's huge you know I even think of like sometimes like what I'll look like and I'll stand in front of a window and film an Instagram story and yeah. how like my how the, the camera captures my face and my skin looks all even toned and bright like if the lighting's good outside and then I go in the bathroom and I look at my face and like they don't look the same you know, yeah. like from what the camera captures. And even then I have this like discrepancy between like my, what I really look like and what I look like on screen, you know? Um, and I definitely, I think that we're, we're all aware of the fact that it's, that it's having an impact and it's really affecting the way that we see ourselves. Um, and I also think that it's really great that women are finally standing up and being like, we need to stop doing this. There's such a widespread implication on the, on the value that we give to beauty. Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, Christina, my production manager, who's sitting next to me right now, she- Oh, she is? Hi. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's right here. Hi. Hi. Um, she, was, she was reading an article just like a couple hours ago, and she was like, oh my gosh, Samsung has like a default setting on their selfie camera that- retouches your face. And this was something that I heard about a couple years ago that Samsung in particular was making that a default setting and they don't disclose it to you either. They don't tell you. It's just the default setting of the phone. Um, and it's made me wonder what other devices are doing that because I've definitely had experiences where like I've looked at it, what I look like on a camera in a video versus like what I look like in a mirror. And I'm like, this is a really big difference. Usually there's like a small difference, which is natural to have, but this is like a very big difference. Like I, I don't have pores. <laughs> that doesn't seem, <laughs> that doesn't seem mm. like something natural. Um, and so I think that is, that is something that is really insidious about, you know, this world of um, retouching and feeling the pressure to look a certain way is that now our devices 
are automatically doing this to us and they're not telling us. Mm. We don't even, we don't even know what we're getting into. Yeah. And I'm curious, I believe Samsung's from Korea, right? And Korea has like the highest, um, per capita, uh, people getting plastic surgery and it's predominantly women and the expectations on beauty are like so pronounced in their society. And it's not even seen as like an option. It's actually seen as expected and normal to like get cosmetic surgery and to get plastic surgery. I listened to an NPR podcast uh, last week about it. And I've been hearing so much about the beauty standard over there and how women who are already ridiculously like culturally seen as beautiful are also going under the knife and getting these augmentations and it's not seen like a big deal to them. And I'm curious, like, I wonder if there's a correlate there, you know, with yeah. Samsung doing that. And yeah, I don't know if, um, Samsung, I don't, I don't know about any of that. So mm-hmm. now I want to read about it. And, you know, I think it's just regardless of, you know, what country you live in, women are expected to pursue perfection. And I think that any kind of obsession with perfection is ultimately harmful because it keeps us trapped and feeling inadequate. And, you know, I was thinking about this today um, when I was thinking about this podcast and perfection and Um, I just thought about how perfection is a shapeshifter and it's this constantly moving target that's always out of reach no matter what you do. And when you, I think, you know, you look at beauty through that lens or, um, you know, the way that we try to make our bodies look through that lens, you can, or even like the work that you do Um, through that lens. You could literally put anything in that place and look at it through that like shape-shifting lens and realize, oh my gosh, I am aiming for something that doesn't even really exist. It's always out of reach. It's always changing. It's always being redefined by someone else, by the, the trends that are happening at that time. And it's going to change again. And it just leaves us in this like constant space of like searching and being unhappy and it's not good enough. And I think that's just really dangerous. Yeah. And consuming money, spending money, trying to fix these things. Yeah. I think about like in the nineties, how like thin eyebrows were a thing. And there's all these fashion bloggers who talk about how like they're growing, they're trying to grow out their eyebrows now because thicker eyebrows are trendy. Sure. And like that, you know, if we look at something in the early two thousands where it was like Mary Kate Olson and Nicole Richie, who are these like super tiny ladies and now it's all about curves and all the right places with like the Kardashians and you're right like the beauty standard and the expectation is always going to be changing um and I also think that perfectionism is a never-ending loop and I recently read Elizabeth Gilbert's book Big Magic and she says perfectionism is dressing fear up in haute couture it's just like a fancy way of saying I'm so afraid I'm not good enough and you use this fancy word called perfection but really it's just fear of not being good enough I am reading, I just started Big Magic, so um, I, I've been loving it so far, and I'm so happy you quoted Elizabeth Gilbert, because I pulled this passage, um, this quote from uh, Julia Cameron, who wrote The Artist's Way. Are you familiar with The Artist's Way? 
Um, yes, it's on my list. I actually think that, uh, the girl cat who came up to you at that event, the thanks event, she DM'd yeah. me and was like, I think you'd like this book. Oh my so. gosh. Yeah. 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 So I love the artist's way and Julia Cameron wrote the artist's way and Elizabeth Gilbert, um, is quoted on the front and the back of the artist's way. Um, because she has done the artist way three times and she says that eat, pray, love would not exist without it. So, mm. um, Julia Cameron has this amazing quote, um, about perfectionism. So I'm going to read it. Okay. Um, perfectionism is the enemy, not the friend of creativity. When we try to get something right, meaning perfect, we create a debilitating loop as we focus only on fixing what we see is wrong and are blind to see what is right. The perfectionist redraws the chin line until there is a hole in the paper. The perfectionist rewrites a sentence until it makes no sense. The perfectionist edits a musical passage over and over, losing sight of the whole. For the perfectionist, nothing is ever quite good enough. Obsessed with the idea that something must be perfect, we lose sight of the joy of creation. Perfectionism is the ego's wicked demand. It denies us the pleasure of process. Instead, we are told by the ego that we must have instantaneous success, and our perfectionism believes, believes it. Perfectionism tells us, that to push ahead, we must be perfect. And yet it is often perfectionism that stalls us and keeps us from moving ahead at all. Perfectionism is the opposite of humility, which allows us to move slowly and steadily forward, making and learning from our mistakes. Perfectionism says do it right or not at all. Mm, yeah, gosh, so true. Yeah. 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 And I can see that any, any, any area of our life, yeah. that, you know? Yeah. I, she's specifically talking about creativity there, but I think it, you know, can permeate any aspect of your life. And I love how she ends it where she says, you know, perfectionism says, do it right or not at all. And like, how many times have we just not done something because we feel like, we can't do it absolutely perfectly, whatever that thing is. And it really does keep us stuck. Mm. Um, and so I think that passage is just so illuminating. It really just is like a laser to the truth in terms of like what perfectionism is and highlights the really dark nature of it. Mm, yeah. And I think for me, like I'll do something and then I just do it over and over and over again. And I'll yeah. have anxiety. I'm like, oh, I should have done it this way or I should have done it that way. Or like, maybe I should go back and change this. And it's like this, this cycle, you know? Yeah. And I think especially in today's world where, you know, we hear a lot about like, you know, you need to, you need to be hustling. You need to be working all the time. You need to be, need to be doing like a thousand different things. Um, we, just become so obsessed with this idea of building like the perfect job, the perfect life, our perfect self. And we, we aren't present for the process and the process and the work is where everything happens. And what I've realized after, you know, creating tangible work for the last 10 years is that 
nothing will ever be perfect. Even if in that moment when I put something out into the world, I think it's perfect, five years later, I could look back on that same piece of work and there's something I would change. So it's just, it's just not a goal that is worth having, I think. And I think that oftentimes perfectionism is celebrated when it's actually, you know, quite a dark thing when you really look at it. Mm, yeah. And you're right. It just keeps you focused on the end result. And so you're, totally. you're actually get to be present and experience like what's happening in front of you, you know? Yeah. And our culture today is so focused on the results, the end results. Um, and then like moving on to the next thing. And I think, you know, real joy and satisfaction and fulfillment comes from being present in the process and really understanding the process and taking that process into the next project that you do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like the skills you garnered and, and learned and, and evolved into and stuff. Yeah. Gosh. Um, a couple last questions here and we'll wrap this up. Um, so you recently celebrated your 10 years, which you shared with us uh, earlier. Congrats. Pretty incredible. Um, and you took some time offline unintentionally. Um, and you had shared that you felt like it was really important for you to do that. And you were starting to realize how life actually happens off the internet. And I'm seeing more and more Instagrammers, so people who use Instagram full-time taking like digital detoxes. And Lee from America, one of my favorite like Instagrammer influencers is like, I'm taking like a month off. See y'all later. Why do you think it's so important that we do that? I mean, just very simply, it's because life is where everything happens. You know, all of our most valuable lessons, and best moments happen offline. And for me, boredom also happens offline as well, which is something that I allow to happen. And I think that boredom has really been one of my greatest teachers that I've had because for me, boredom usually leads to curiosity, to resourcefulness, and sometimes even adventure, which has been really surprising to go from being totally bored to, oh my God, now I'm experiencing this adventure that I did not see coming and I'm learning so much. Um, And you know, in today's world, most of us have to be online to some extent. And I think that's totally fine. Like that's just what it is. But what I've realized for myself is that the internet is a tool it's a resource and a space to share my work, but it's not the place where the work is done. And that was something that was a breakthrough moment for me, that the internet is where I share my work. It's not the place where the work is done. And that was like, oh my God, okay. <laughs> this like totally makes sense for me. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think that, The work of a deeply connected life happens when you close your laptop, when you put down your phone, and you just simply start paying attention to the world around you. That's where that deep fulfillment, that authentic joy comes from. And that allows you also, you know, to connect those dots from your past into your present that help lead you into your future, the authentic future that you want for yourself. 
Mm, yeah. Yeah. And I actually can see how if you don't actually take some time away, it's really hard for you to connect to what it is you really want because exactly. you get so influenced by all of the influencers, you know, and, and, and even just other people in your life, right? Like not, not just like macro influencers or anything, but when you're constantly consuming, I think it's hard to decide what you like to, to connect to your intuition. Yeah, totally. It's hard to figure out you know, what your actual opinions are on something and how you're feeling about certain things. Because I always think there's a point, at least I noticed for myself, that when I go online, there's like the space for it to be a useful, productive tool for me. And then there's the line that like, if I step over it, then I'm like avoiding something. I'm like avoiding a feeling. I'm avoiding doing something that you know, I know I should be doing because it's going to like be the next right step for me. And so from that has been really valuable for me to understand when I'm using something as a tool and when I'm using the internet as, you know, a place to avoid feelings or a next step or action that I know I need to be taking. Mm, yeah. So kind of like as a coping mechanism or a distraction, or like you said, a tool. Yeah, really potent, powerful distinction. And that would really take slowing down and building awareness. You know, yeah. like, what am I actually doing in this moment? What's my motivator? You know? Plus, it's just fun to not be online. Like, don't get me wrong. I love the internet. I love consuming content when I feel like I'm in a space where it's going to fill me up. It's going to entertain me. Um, but I think that, you know, more and more what I'm seeing is that people just lighting up as if they've just discovered this for the first time because we are so connected. Oh my God, I loved spending time with actual people. I think people are having that realization more and more. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I've realized, yes, that's because that's what I'm meant to do as a human being. I'm meant to be around other people. I'm meant to have these real world experiences. And, you know, all of that is part of like the gathering of your life in order to like fill you up, to replenish you so you can go and do the work that you need to be doing, whether it's, you know, the work of your soul, the work to pay the bills, all of it. It helps you get through all of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And nothing's a replace for the, the actual in-person human connection. You know, like the internet's great. Like I'm talking to you over zoom right now. I can see you, but it's not really actually the same. Yeah. You know, it's close, you know, but yeah, nothing will actually replace that in human connection and just being in real life. Uh, two last quick questions. We'll wrap this up. We've been chatting for a while here. What does body wisdom mean to you? Body wisdom to me means listening to what your body is telling you with curiosity, not judgment. Mm, yeah. Super potent and simple. Love it. And what advice do you have for your 20 year old self? I thought about this a lot because I was just like, what advice don't I have for my 20 year old self? <laughs> I can say a lot of things to my 20 year old self, but I feel you. <laughs> Ultimately, what I would want to say is to keep paying attention, asking questions, and following your instincts, 
because the deeply connected life that you seek is a series of small, nourishing actions accumulated one day at a time. Mm, So well said. Thank you. And I think, you know, when I look back on those dots in my life and I connect them, all of the, um, you know, pivotal moments in my life started with those small nourishing actions and they built up over time. Mm, Yeah. I think that that's some, like we've talked about it quite a few times over the course of this conversation, but you get so distracted by the end result that you miss those micro moments. And that's really, like you said, those nourishing little moments have really built up to create those pivotal, pivotal, pivotable ones in your life. Yeah, those are, and honestly, those are the ones that all, those are the things that stay with you. You know, the larger moments, the biggest, the bigger accomplishments are great, but you never forget those small actions that you took to replenish and nourish yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So agree. Ingrid, thank you so much for being here today, being so generous with yourself and your story. I know this conversation is going to really make a difference for a lot of people. And I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. I loved talking to you. Our time went by so fast. <laughs> it was so juicy and good. I um, know, it really was. I'm pretty sure everyone knows where to find you, but just in case, where can everybody find you? You can find me everywhere on the internet. <laughs> I am on all social media platforms and on YouTube at Ingrid Nelson. Awesome. Yeah. It was so great to chat with you. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much, Kara. And that's our show for today. Oh my gosh. Wasn't that great? Ingrid is incredible. I have so much respect for her. She's so well-spoken and intelligent and really kind and truly genuine. Um, I really loved having her on. I really hope that you guys got a lot out of this conversation and you learned something about yourself um, and you learned some new things about the world and the world's expectations of you and your body. If you loved this, please share it with someone. Share it online. Share it on Instagram. Leave a ratings and review on iTunes. That always makes me so happy. And I'd love to hear your thoughts. I'm super open to your feedback. And I will see you guys all next week. Thank you so much for tuning in. 